views expressed are not endorsed by the United States Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to the Flyover Podcast as part of USAFA Aviation. Today is episode 14, and we, we are privileged to have Lieutenant General Richard M. Clark with us today. Lieutenant General Clark is the superintendent of the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado, where he directs the, a four-year regimen of military training, academics, athletic, and character development programs, leading to a Bachelor of Science degree and a commission as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force or U.S. Space Force. Lieutenant General Clark graduated from the United States Air Force Academy in 1986. He later went on to undergraduate pilot training. After graduating UPT, he flew the EC-135 and then transitioned to the B-1 bomber, where he spent a majority of his flying career. Throughout his career, he also had the opportunity to fly the KC-135, T-1, T-38, T-6, and C-21. His commands include the 34th Bomb Squadron, Ellsworth Air Force Base, South Dakota, 12th Flying Air Training Wing, Randolph Air Force Base, Texas, 8th Air Force, Barksdale Air Force Base, Louisiana, and Joint Functional Component Commander for Global Strike, Offutt Air Force Base, Nebraska. He has served as a White House Fellow in Washington, D.C., the Commandant of Cadets, United States Air Force Academy, Colorado, Senior Defense Official and Defense Attaché, Cairo, Egypt, and as the Commander, 3rd Air Force, Ramstein Air Base, Germany. Prior to his current assignment, he served as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategic Deterrence and Nuclear Integration at the Pentagon. Sir, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I guess we'll kind of just hop straight into your flying career, basically. So um, as a pilot of the, originally as a pilot of the uh, EC-135 in the final years of the Cold War, could you describe a little bit what the Looking Glass mission was and how it impacted um, America's strategy if we went to war with the Soviet Union? Oh, yeah, John. First, let me say thank you, John, Jack. Thanks for having me today. This is awesome. I love talking about flying and I don't get the opportunity to do it that much, so thank you. Um, and then going to my first flying assignment in the EC-135, I will be honest with you, when I got out of pilot training and that's the assignment I got, I was devastated. I wanted to fly an AC-130 gunship. That's what I wanted. That was my uh, top choice. And so when I got the EC-135, the first thing I had to do was ask, what is that? What does it do? I had no clue. And uh, what I learned was that it was a linchpin aircraft, airframe for uh, in the Cold War, like you mentioned. And what it did was we always had a general officer on board. And this aircraft, it was stationed off it. We had, uh, I think, 12, 12 to 16 aircraft. And it always had an instructor pilot on board, a co-pilot, 24 people in the back that was the battle staff with a general and we took off and we flew and there was one airborne for 31 years straight so it started flying in the 60s and you would always have one airborne so each mission that we flew we would take off once we got airborne and situated the one that was already airborne would come and land and then we'd fly our uh, our pattern for about eight hours and uh, it was great we'd air refuel because we had to get, you know, go behind a tanker. It was a tanker being refueled by a tanker, basically. But the battle staff kept connectivity with all the missile fields. And the idea was, if the balloon went up, if we had that nuclear war um, and Strategic Air Command went down, the White House went down, everything was out, you had a general officer in the air that could actually launch the, the counter-strike with the missiles. And so... That was the real role, was to have a survivable command and control element and uh, ready to fight the war if it happened. 
Um, the thought of it was pretty scary, to be honest. I always thought, man, if we actually have to do our mission, things got really bad. And we, you, you think about what you were going to be going home to if something like that happened. But I will say it was an awesome assignment. I learned so much in that role, and I couldn't have asked for a better first job um, flying. I got about mm, 2,000 hours in two years. That's a lot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when you're flying eight hours each mission. And, and they weren't, uh, a lot of the hours were just kind of drone time, but then we'd have refueling, you know, where you had to go get, you know, get gas. And I became pretty good at that. You sometimes had to land at different places because weather couldn't stop you. The mission had to go on. So if you had to divert somewhere, take off from somewhere different, you know, it was a very agile mission. And uh, there was, <laughs> you couldn't have a bad landing, right? Yeah. You had 24 people in the back and a general officer when you landed, it better be good. It's worse than the airlines. So, uh, but I, I loved it and uh, learned a lot. Flew with an IP, but I only did it for two years. And then usually, if you did a good job in that mission, you got your choice of assignment afterwards. And so I got the B one, and uh, so it, it paid off in that way too. So it was amazing assignment. Uh, huge part of the Cold War and the history. So it was great. So you mentioned you know you did well and you ended up transitioning to the B one. Um, so was that your first choice or did you have another aircraft in mind? Well, the B-1 was my first choice. I, I had seen it, and back then it was fairly new, uh, the B-1 was, and there, they didn't give it out of pilot training. You couldn't get one out of pilot training. You had to have flown something else and, and go into it. Interesting. And um, I was just like, man, that, that one would be a pretty cool aircraft to fly. It may just look good. Uh, the bomber mission appealed to me. Um, and I, and I like the idea of flying with an air crew, you know, I kind of grew up that way in the, in the 135 doing that for those two years. And I, I like that idea as well. Um, only a few people got to get the, uh, got fighters out of there. Like we had a handful. So, uh, but the bomber actually, we only had a handful of bombers too. Most people went to KC 10s because that was another big one back then. People really loved that, uh, that airframe, but I was lucky to get the B1. So awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, flying the B1, um, you were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross during your time. Um, what's the story behind that? How'd you get it? Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. It uh, surprised me that, uh, that our crew was awarded that, but our wing commander put us in, and it was during Iraqi Freedom, and we had a mission. It was a, um, a high-priority mission that came up spur of the moment. I was the squadron commander. And I had to pull a crew together uh, out of outside the normal schedule, and I didn't have another aircraft commander, so I was like, "Well, I guess that would be me flying that." And uh, we sort of cobbled the crew together, and the whole mission was it was a big night where we were going to take out the whole integrated air defense system in Iraq. It was about the fourth or fifth night of the war, I think, and. Um, so we went in, and, and we knew it was going to be a little bit hairy. The funny thing about it was they put all the bombers in the third wave, and there was only four, four bombers, I think, and, and we were the least capable of defending ourselves. And I didn't think about that until it started going because we started pushing out, and the first wave goes out, nothing. They put their bombs on target. It's all the, you know, the F-16s and the fighters and everything. And you didn't see anything. And then the second wave goes, and then you start seeing a few missiles and some anti-aircraft artillery go. 
after the second wave. After the second wave went, everybody was awake, and the sky just lit up, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, what are we getting into? And I remember my co-pilot goes, sir, what do we do about that? Because you just see <laughs> anti-aircraft artillery. I was like, dude, high-priority target. We're a go, so let your training take over. Start flying. And I actually had my co-pilot flying because I had this map. We're working with the Wizzos. And uh, what happened on the sortie, we had to go take out these very specific SA-3 sites and their missile storage. And, you know, bombers aren't normally in a role to go take out SA-3s, but we had suppression of enemy air defense uh, with us, so they were there to sort of take out any, uh, any hot missiles that might be coming. Uh, or any hot sites that that popped up. And so we go in, and we had to hit the first 12. And in a B-1, when you're dropping your bombs, you cannot threat react. If you have to threat react, you have to break off the bomb run because you you have to be in a stable platform because we're dropping JDAM 2,000-pounders. So when you're seeing the anti-aircraft artillery or you, we saw three missiles uh, at least they looked ballistic because they weren't necessarily tracking on us, but you can't threat react or you have to stop the bomb run. And so we're, we're just going straight in and you just feel like a sitting duck because it was 12 targets that we were dropping on. And that takes a while. It, it took us probably 40 seconds or 45 seconds going straight. And, and so we get there and uh, we hit all, we dropped all of our bombs and I was so, you know, you, you kind of feel this relief after you get the last one. I'm like, button up, we're out of here. And we start maneuvering. And the whistle goes, sir, we had one bomb comm fault. It didn't go out. And I was like, oh, man. And I said, do, do we have time in our window to go back? Secretly, I was hoping he would say no. But he <laughs> said, yes, sir, we do. And I took the aircraft from the Copa. I said, we're going back. And I, and I just put it into a hard turn. And, I, you know, because we had to get back there. Uh, and, you know, it was just like we're flying right back into all this anti-aircraft artillery, everything that we had been flying into, and we're just pushing. And then we did actually get a missile that looked like it was tracking on us. So we, we threat, I threat reacted. We pulled away from the missile, looked like it, it had gone by, rolled back into the bomb run, and 10 seconds out, uh, we're, you know, we're trying to stay within the, the, the TOT window, the time over target window, because you can't drop outside of that because otherwise other bad things can happen. It's a cardinal rule. Ten seconds out, the, the whistle goes, so we're going to be out of our window. We're going to have to withhold. And, you know, I didn't even think about it. Once you, you know, you withhold, you got to withhold. You can't drop a bomb out of the window. And then we had to turn around and go back in, in through all that stuff. And it was just, I mean, we were literally, uh, you, you know, sometimes you feel like you're fighting for your life, but I thought, we we're going to get hit. Something's going to happen here. And we were just, we're threat reacting. The co-pilot's looking out. He's like, sir, break left, hard left, hard left. You know, and it's just, it's very intense. And we finally get through that and we still have 12 bombs left. Uh, so we got through that. Then we get to our second bomb run and we're driving in and it's another high priority target. All these are high priority targets because it's anti-aircraft it's, it's SAM surface-to-air missiles so that the rest of the missions from that point on can go safely. We're driving into this last one, and honest to goodness, driving in, and all of a sudden the cockpit goes full bright white. Oh my gosh. And there's a missile, and it's coming up, and it, and it just, I, 
I swear I could hear it. I, I, I asked the co-pilot afterwards, you know, we are on the ground. I said, did you actually hear that? And he was like, sir, I think I did. It was that close. And we we rolled. You know, I rolled and pulled uh, like, like we're trained to do. But I know that had nothing to do with it because that thing, it was within, we estimated within about uh, two to 300 feet of us, wow. which um, is usually pretty bad because there's proc proximity fuses, all kinds of bad stuff that happens. And it went right over us. And we were just, I thought we were toast. Well, we still got our bomb on target. We, we delivered the bombs there. And then we were what we call Winchester, meaning all of our bombs were out except one. And it was the one that we didn't get out back before. And my Wizzle goes, hey, sir, do we need to go back and, and do this? I said, yep. And so we roll back in, and we start driving to it, and we're calling the Air Ops Command, saying uh, Air, uh, Air Operations Center, saying, hey, we're going back to hit that last target that we weren't able to get out of our TOT window. Do we get approval, blah, blah, blah? And they go, uh, no need. Somebody picked it up later. I was like, thank God. <laughs> and so then we rolled out, and they said, you're cleared to press, uh, you know, RTB. So we went home. Um, and so that – that was the mission, and there was a you know there was a whole bunch of stuff. I, I just kind of gave you the the um, uh, wave tops of it, but when we got back and did the intel debrief and everything, they were just like, "Holy crap!" And they gave it to the wing commander, and then he submitted us, and so we the crew was awarded a DFC. In fact, our co-pilot got a DFC with Valor because he was flying in that you know in that initial part, right. and and you know as we described it. And, you know, the things that he was trying to do to just keep us safe while I'm looking at the map, going, no, you know, and he's he's just kind of handling everything. So um, it's pretty cool. Sir, so you mentioned the the window being like a cardinal rule. So, yes. so why is that? Well, so picture this. Uh, you have a TOT window, time over target window, where you can release any anywhere in that time frame. Well, everybody's planning on you dropping your weapons in that window. So picture an aircraft that might be below you, a friendly aircraft that's that's flying in a in a, an airspace that's right below where your your weapon fall happens. If you're outside that window, everyone's planning on that being a clear area at that point. If you're outside of that, they might fly right into your weapon. You have ground forces that know, hey, there's bombs falling at this time. Don't go in this area during this time because that's when bombs are falling. You you could end up you know fratricide. Um, and then there's just uh, the idea of um, when a target is, um, when it's okay to hit a certain target, you're given a window to that. But it controls, and it's all driven by the Air Operations Center, all of the planning, but the whole air war is planned on people being within their time, time over target window. So um, dropping outside of that window really is, uh, it's something you just don't do. And so um, even when we were 10 seconds out and had done all that to get to that window, there, there was no way that we were going to drop outside of it. So and I, I kind of gave you a signal to withhold. There's a switch up front that when we say withhold, just so you can get it done as quickly as possible, everybody's got a well in the front and the back. There's a switch so that you can withhold that, uh, that bomb uh, at any second. And we, we had to do that. But it's just what you do. We're trained to do it. And... There's, you make that decision before you even take off. It's like if somebody says withhold, if you're going to be out of your window, you withhold. So, 
Yeah, it was yeah, that's <laughs> interesting sto- sortie, but uh, yeah, sounds like it was. Um, was every mission like that, or no? It- we had a couple <laughs> that were similar. That one was uh, that was a long night, and it was the most intense sortie I had that that our crew had uh, during that time with that crew. It was kind of an ad hoc crew, um, but that was the most intense sortie that I had, and that any of them had. But there there was a couple of others that were. Um, had moments of intensity, but that one just, it just seemed to be a gift that kept on giving. It's like <laughs> one thing after another, and we were just trying to, Absolutely. you know, get through, and it lasted like seven hours. Like, I just told you that in, you know, a couple minutes, but it was a seven-hour mission. So outside of that story, what do you think the coolest story in the B-1 is that you had? Mm, the coolest one? Um... Well, I, there's a lot of cool ones that I uh, that I was I was more proud of that I wasn't I wasn't even on the plane, but that crews that were in my squadron things that they did, like make that story that I just told you look like you know a cakewalk, right? And I, I was always so proud of uh, what other crews did, but some of the some of the great ones. One time, um, we uh, so the B one used to also have a nuclear role. And it had a, a system on it called automatic terrain following. And you hit this switch, and the B-1 um, will automatically stay at low altitude because it was a low-altitude penetrator in the Cold War, fly under enemy radar so that you could get to the target, deliver your your nuclear weapons, and then, and then hopefully get out. You know, not a guarantee, but hopefully get out. But it had this uh, system that would follow the terrain, so mountains, to whatever you had, it would keep you and hug the ground at whatever altitude you dialed in. So anywhere from 200 to 2,000 feet. And on this one mission, it was a training mission, but it was to test out a nuclear weapon. And um, the the B-1 was programmed to go, you start at 15,000 feet, you normally would dial in the terrain following radar, it would pitch the nose down, fly you down, and then we would level off at 1,000 feet, and then it would, and then you stepped it down uh, to as low as you could go. The lowest we could fly was 400 feet with terrain following radar. Uh-huh. But for this weapon um, test, we had to go to 200 feet. I had never been at 200 feet on terrain following radar or any other low level flying because we're also flying at 0.85 Mach, and that's really fast at 200 feet. That's seconds to hit the ground. So um, we're doing this uh, this drop. And we're supposed to drop a simulated nuclear weapon to test the aerodynamics of the weapon to make sure it can hit the target and that it, you know, it does the things that it's supposed to. So we're, we come in at 15,000 feet, and it's me and, and a couple of other guys. I was a pretty new instructor pilot. And we're kind of hanging out. We got delayed them letting us down. But we have to get this bomb out because it's critical to getting the test done. And they're like, oh, you know, get it done. Make sure you don't, you know, blow this. Right. So we're at 15,000 feet. They're delaying us, and we're coming up on the target. We call the initial point to target, so you're, we're all set up. We're still at 15,000 feet, and I'm like, I have to drop the bomb at 200 feet. That's the only way we're going to get the test. And I'm talking to air traffic control. They're like, well, we have something going on. There was some kind of Cessna or something that had gotten to the <laughs> airspace. You know, and I'm like, oh, I, I got to get down. I got to get down. And they, uh, you know, finally... We're driving in, and there's also a TOT here because they have people out there that are scoring the test or looking at the bomb, all this right. stuff. And they go, um, 
uh, as we're coming in, they go, we're at 15,000. They go, okay, you're cleared down. The whistle goes, sir, we're not going to have time to level off at 1,000 feet and then step it down to 200 feet. I said, in my brilliance, I go, all right, we're just going to go straight to 200 feet. <laughs> Imagine, you know, you're at 15,000 feet, nose pitches down, and as I'm looking at this, you know, we're flying. You don't touch the system. It's the autopilot that's flying you down, and we're screaming at .85 Mach, and I'm looking, and as I'm going down, and my brilliance thinking, this was a good idea. All of a sudden, I thought this was not a good idea. <laughs> if the system doesn't work, we're you know we're a smoking hole. But man, it was cool because the system worked perfectly, and we just went, and it leveled off at 200 feet. We drove into Target, dropped the bomb, man. But I would never do it again, <laughs> ever, ever, ever. And neither would anybody else on the crew. They were like, "What were we thinking?" So that was one of those dumb moments, you know, as a as a new IP that you don't want to relive. So there's a reason they level it off at a thousand feet. Yeah, that's some uh, that's some insane trust in the computer system. <laughs> you are right, man. I thought, oh, what have I done? But once you're all, you know, you're seeing this your windscreen filling up with ground. You're just like, if this doesn't work, eh, I'll never know anyway. But uh, it worked. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. <clears throat> so. Uh, continuing on um, towards the end of your flying career, uh, the Air Force has experienced uh, a few problems retaining pilots from major to colonel as they transition to staff jobs out of and out of flying. Uh, what was that transition like for you? Mm, a little bit traumatic, uh, but, you know, it's, it's a necessary thing because the Air Force needs to bring uh, that expertise from the flying world onto the staff. You need people with recency of experience understand the weapon system, understand war fighting from a tactical level so that you can bring that knowledge to the staff. Um, but it's a hard transition because so many of us, once you start flying, you want to keep flying. It is, it's just a great way to make a living. My son always says, dad, you always said, I can't believe they pay me to do this, you know? And I, and I have always, I always thought that while I was flying. Every other job, I realized why they were paying me though, but not when I was flying. And, um, I think that it's it's hard for people because usually, you know, a lot of times they come into the Air Force to fly. That's what they want to do. So that transition can be a little bit tough. But I think when you take that bigger picture and really realize that you're bringing that expertise to help all the other flyers so that you're helping to make sure that there's a sense of um, currency on the staff so that decisions that are made are actually relevant to people that are still flying and in the cockpit, it, it's important, you know. And so for me, it was it was kind of tough, but when I got onto the staff, I went to the Pentagon for my first staff job, and um, it, it was helpful to be able to bring some of that into the um, the decision-making, you know. And you're, you're kind of a, you're still a major lieutenant colonel, you're at a lower level, but people actually listen when you can talk about what's really going on out in the field. Um, I felt like I was heard um, and was able to bring some uh, some of that to the to the staff. But it, it's a tough thing. But then I, I did get to go back, and I, I was in and out of the staff. Like, I flew for most of the time for, gosh, like 12 years, and then it was kind of in and out. You know, I'd, I'd go to the staff, and then I'd come back to flying. I'd go to the staff and come back to flying. And then when you get really old, it's just you're done, you know. <laughs> so I, I haven't been flying now for like six years. Okay. So that, that's been, 
I, I'm over it now, but I'll tell you for a few years, I was like, man, I just want to get in an airplane. Just let me take off yeah. one more time, you know. Uh, but it's good. It's been a great, great career. I'll never, ever look back with regrets on it. So kind of transitioning a little bit towards the future of the Air Force, where the Air Force as a whole is going. You know, we're talking a lot about the B-1 today. You know, looking at the bomber fleet as a whole, what what role does the B-1 play in comparison to, say, the B-2 and the soon-to-be rolled out and regularly flown B-21? Yeah. Well, the you know, the B-1 always, um, the thing that the B-1 brought to um, the bomber force was uh, first, it first was a low-level bomber, but then we transitioned mostly due to threats and um, just the lack of need for the B-1 in the nuclear role. When the B-1 went conventional, we were primarily uh, higher altitude, never high. You know, high altitude for us was 23,000, flight level 230, 23,000 feet, you know, um, where some bombers are flying at 39, like the, the B-52. But the thing the B-1 did have was it could carry a lot of bombs. Um, huge payload, um, and it had an ability to get there a little bit faster. Speed was something that the B-1 brought to the table, and uh, and a bit of maneuverability. So that's what it brought. The B-52 brought basically mass. Uh, it could carry a huge amount of weapons. It could fly at a much higher altitude, and it had uh, probably a better standoff capability because of the weapons that it could carry to bring that to the fight. And then the, B, the B-2 brings the stealth, you know, and uh, a decent amount of payload, maybe not as much as the B, B-1 or the B-2, but, but the stealth capability was, is critical and, and just really gave us a lot of uses for the B-2. So there were some complements of each of them in the overall bomber force, but now we're at a point where the B-1 is just, it's costing us a lot of money to maintain it. Um, it's been flown in ways that it wasn't designed to fly. Uh, like I mentioned, it was designed to fly at low level. We've been flying it at high level for a long time in turns, you know, doing things at altitude with the wings swept forward, which puts different kind of loads on the aircraft and just a lot of things. It was deployed in the desert. It was meant to be a, you know, fly from home base to the, to the nuclear target. Um, so it was just flown in ways that it wasn't meant to be flown, but it did well. But I think now it's outlived its, its usefulness, and it'll be the first one, I think, in the early 2030s or so that'll, um, that'll phase out and then make room for the B-21, which is going to be an amazing aircraft. And the B-2 also will phase out because the B-21 will bring that stealth capability. Um, and so we can phase the B-2 out and bring the B-21 in, and the B-52 will continue to fly. I imagine the B-52 will probably fly till it's 100 years old. But we have to replace the engines on it, and that's going to be critical. But we're looking at it because it has so much capacity. I mean, it can carry a lot of weapons. It can carry a lot of crew. And you can frankly do standoff uh, from the B-52. It's not a penetrator anymore. You know, it's not going to go downtown and drop weapons. But we can um, load it with standoff with new engines. It'll be able to, uh, you know, carry those weapons a long way, shoot them from a long ways out, and then leave. So uh, if we can get the, the weapon um, uh, replacement done, it's going to be a viable aircraft for a lot longer. Imagine 100 years. Generations of people will fly that bomber. It's going to be wild. Yeah, so we'll have the B-52 and the B-21, you know, the newest and the oldest. But, 
but they will complement each other well. And the B-21 will take over that penetration role, and it'll be able to do that mission uh, well for us. So, so as we kind of talk about the future fight a little bit, you know, we kind of look towards the Pacific Ocean mm-hmm. and, and fighting a war across it. What do you think the biggest challenge that the U.S. military faces if that were the case? Well, having a, a place to launch from, logistics over the massive Pacific Ocean, the distances, the tyranny of distance of the Pacific is just going to be a tough problem. Um, we don't have a lot of bases throughout, you know, on the island chains that are in the Pacific, ones that are out of the reach of uh, ballistic missiles or, or other threats. So that's going to be really hard for us. And to, to maintain that kind of fight for long term uh, is going to be difficult. But we're, you know, we're doing things like looking for places where we can island hop or, or find different landing strips or landing bases or or whatever, we're building alliances that will allow us to uh, fly out of them for that war in the Pacific. But I think the bombers are gonna prove prominent. Um, You don't have to necessarily have a place to land. You can fly a bomber. I mean, we flew bombers, B-2 bombers for 44 hours. Um, You know, a 44 hour mission is a long time, but we can do it with air refueling. And so I think in the Pacific, at least initially, until things get underway, bombers will prove uh, very um, useful, but they can't always go alone. I mean, you, you know, you need you need protection. You need other people to get air superiority, air supremacy, to do the things that we need to do. So they're not going to be the end-all, be-all, but I think they'll prove prominent. Um, the B-52 with its standoff capability will be um, very helpful, and the B-21 with its stealth properties, I think is going to be significant. And if we can have that um, inventory filled out the way it needs to be, the B-21 will be a game changer for us in, in that war. But you, you still, you can't do it alone. You still need tankers. You still need fighters. You need the whole complement. We, we, um, we never go alone. You know, we, we're just, we, we don't train that way. We don't fight that way. So um, there's no silver bullet to it, but... There's just a lot of issues with the tyranny of distance in the Pacific that we're just going to have to figure out. And we're working hard on it right now. So um, hopefully we never come to that, but it's something we're leaning into so that when it does happen, we're ready. Yes, sir. Yeah. Awesome. So um, kind of looking into the the people side of the future, um, there's been all sorts of headlines about military recruitment and not meeting uh, not meeting objectives and um, retention issues. A lot of people who joined after 9/11 are getting out. Um, how do you think? Um, how do you think we can address that um, recruitment into the future? Yeah, you know, Jack, recruitment is a that is not just for the Air Force. That is across DoD. We've just been having a lot of recruitment issues. Um, I think that people aren't as um, drawn to the military, maybe as, as they used to be. Um, a lot of people aren't as qualified to join the military as they used to be. So it's something that we're looking for creative ways to bring people in. And honestly, I think the, one of the important things that we need to do is appeal to first people's sense of purpose, but also their, their, their sense of what do they want to do. And you kind of hit on it earlier when you talked about um, making that transition to, to, you know, you join the Air Force to fly airplanes and then you find yourself sitting at a desk. 
we have to find ways to allow people the flexibility to serve the way that they want to serve. If they want to continue to fly, we have to give them opportunities to do that. If they need to take a, a break in their career, we need to give them opportunities to do that. If they want to go to the guard or the reserves, if they, you know, there's a lot of different paths so that people can make their service fit their life instead of making their life fit their service. And, and I just think that that's something that um, we have to um, see as a reality and figure out different ways to help people to serve in a way that they can, they can actually do it and, and enjoy it and be fulfilled and, uh, you know, live their lives the way they want to live. So there's a lot of things uh, that I think we're looking at now to help people tailor their lives around their service, and hopefully it, it works for us. So we're kind of talking a little bit about, you know, recruiting. So, sir, one day you were recruited. Mm-hmm. So, um, what, you know, what made you join the Air Force? And oh. uh, did you always know you wanted to fly? Man, that, yeah, that's a good question. So, I, you know, I don't come from a military family. Um, <clears throat> never thought that I would actually join the military, but I did want to fly airplanes. And I, uh, you know, flying on a commercial airline, I was like, man... Back in those days, okay, it's back in the old days when people used to smoke cigarettes on the airplane, all right? No joke. But they also let kids go in the cockpit. And my parents uh, were divorced. They were split up, and, and we lived coast to coast. And so my brother and I used to fly by ourselves on the plane when we were little kids all the way to California from Virginia. And they would allow us to go up in the cockpit. And, oh, like, oh, man, it was like something. They even... One time I was on a flight, they let us serve drinks. Like me and my brother are walking down with trays of drinks with the uh, with the flight attendants. It was so great back wow. then. But literally, people would be smoking on the plane. That was when they served meals on the plane, all kinds of stuff. But I loved it. And when I got to go in those cockpits, I thought, man, this is what I want to do. And just seeing it. But I thought, I mean, honestly, it was being a commercial pilot was what I wanted to do. I remember I did a ninth grade project on it, and it was great, and blah, blah, blah. Well, when um, it came time for college, I got recruited to play football. And Air Force was recruiting me, but then I thought, you know what? I don't want to be in the military. West Point was recruiting me, Annapolis. I was like, I know I don't want to go in the Army or the Navy, and I don't want to go in the Air Force. And so I was going to go to William & Mary. And I had signed for him, and the head coach came to my house the head coach from Air Force Academy came to my house to talk to my parents and me, Ken Hatfield. And he talked to my mom, and she was like, well, maybe you should just go look. Just go see it. <laughs> and and he was like, yeah, come on out. It's free. We'll get you out there. Blah. And I was like, okay. And so I came out here, and I'll be honest, man, I came out and saw the academy. They took me down to the airfield, yeah. showed me some airplanes, let me sit in one. Never sat, even though I was always in the cockpits, I never got to actually, you know, sit yeah. in one like that. And and I was like, man, this is it. And I, and I actually saw a pathway to becoming a pilot. And it wasn't so much the military. It was the pilot. It was flying that made me come here. But then after some time, I think uh, it, it, it became more than that. You know, it became, you know what? I, I actually like this Air Force stuff mm-hmm. and this military service and, you know, the other aspects of it. And I think as the years went on, I, I stayed in because of the people, because of the mission and the things that we got to do. 
even when I had an opportunity to go to the airlines and later in my career, it was still about the, the flying mission that we got to do. You, you just couldn't, I, I couldn't compare that to flying in the airlines. So I, for me, it was better to stay in because it, it really was what I wanted to do. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, um, we, we ask a lot of people how they ended up in the Air Force and everyone has a different, everyone yeah. has a different story, um, you know, why they came, why they stayed. Um, so it's, it's always super interesting to hear that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I know. I've said it on this podcast before, but I knew I wanted to be in the military in third grade. Did really? not tell my parents until junior year of high school when I learned about the service academies. But it's a crazy story. They're oh, super man. supportive, but uh, yeah, it's kind of a crazy story. So you didn't come from a military family? Well, um, not directly. So my grandfather served in World War II as a maintenance oh. officer, but he died of natural causes before I was born. Oh. So there wasn't a, a direct tie, I guess. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's different for me. I didn't. I mean, the only time I started considering the military was I did Civil Air Patrol in high school, and I was like, that's a cool opportunity, but I don't know this military thing. And then I started looking at colleges and saw the service academies and went, actually, that could be that could be pretty cool. Yeah. I, I mean, here. here we are. Yeah, if it, All three of us, right? <laughs> if it was not for my sister, she told me to start looking. I got stuff in West, from West Point in the mail. She's like, you should look into this. Really? And I, I immediately ruled out West Point and then Annapolis <laughs> uh, on the Air Force Academy. I'm like, this is the place. This is the place. Yeah, I'm with you. So, uh, you know, you're, you're in your later stages of your career and, and you're... That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> and and you're, you're planning on retiring from the military and, and you're going to leave the role as a superintendent of the Air Force Academy. So what do you think the biggest challenge that the Academy faces um, is currently? as you're leaving and then how, how, how are we going to address that as, as a, as an academy? Huh, that's a good question, John. I, you know, the academy through the years, I mean, I was here as the commandant, you know, 10, what, gosh, 10 to 12, 2010 to 2012. And I've always kind of been connected either loosely or directly with the academy through, throughout the years. And, you know, the challenges for us really, are to make sure that we focus on our core mission. You know, and our mission, it really is to develop leaders of character and, and to make sure that we keep that front and center and that we don't deviate from that. If we, if we lose that, we might as well be anybody else, you know? And so, I, and I know academics are so vitally important to us and we wanna produce uh, the best thinkers, right? We wanna produce warrior scholars. We wanna produce athletes, people that can, you know, withstand the pressures of being uh, living a military life. And, you know, if, if we have to go to combat, there's some physical stresses there, but there's, you know, we want people that can do those kinds of things. But none of that is more important than developing leaders of character. And if we don't get that right, and if we let that stray as our primary mission, um, then, then we failed as an academy. And so, um, we've had our ups and downs, right? We've had our challenges over the years. Don't sometimes people go, Oh my gosh, we have this and we're doing that. There, there is no new problem that we're facing that we haven't faced almost throughout our whole existence. And there is no problem that we haven't faced at West Point, Annapolis, any other university faces. However, we have to deal with it. Like we don't have a choice, but right. to overcome those challenges when we have them. And, um, and so I think, the biggest challenge that we have is to focus on our mission and not lose sight of what's most important to us. And when we do have, uh, you know, if we have a lapse or we have something that's not going right, 
to face it head on every time and deal with it and deal with it up front. Don't try to hide it, but just handle it and, and get ourselves back on track with what, what's important to us. And so, you know, in my time, you know, we've done a lot. I mean, the, I love our school and I love the cadets. I love being around you guys so much. I love our staff, faculty, AOCs, AMTs, because they're passionate about developing leaders. Um, but we've had moments where I feel like we've, we've kind of strayed from what, what was most important to us. But then what I love is that we've always found our way back, you know, and it might, it might happen. We might have a lapse, but then we find our way back. And that's what we have to do. Always, always try to find um, our, our North Star and keep driving towards that. Even when you have, I mean, that's, that's the same in our personal lives, right? Nobody's perfect. You're going to have moments, but what's more, what's most important is you recognize that moment and you find your way back to what where your center is, you know, uh, as a as a leader of character. So, and I I talk about it a lot, and I think sometimes people I don't know if they know it or not, but I believe it with everything in me that character matters for everything, and that goes in my 38 years. The people that I want to serve with most are the people that that have the character to go do it. When you're fighting, when you're in combat, the one thing that you want to know is that somebody's got your back and they're with you and they're going to do it the right way and that they're going to fight by your side all the way. That's what matters. And that's who we need to be developing. Awesome. Yeah. We had, um, our 59 grad guest that I mentioned earlier, he talked about much of the same thing in Vietnam. He wanted those guys that when they said they went and did the mission, he wanted those guys who actually went and did it right. Right. Um, that that integrity piece is super important. To Critical. Them. Critical. Yeah. So if, if you're if you're going to do it all over again, your entire mm-hmm. career, I know you said you have very little gr- regrets, but is is there anything that you would change about your career? Oh, man, what would I change? Um. See that that's a hard one because. Um, there, there's probably some things that I would change, but then if I did, I wonder what, you know, what else would have changed, you know, there, you know, it's yeah. like the butterfly effect or whatever, you know, the butterfly flaps one more time or something changes the world and disaster, I, you know, something like that. Yeah. But I, so I, I don't know that I, even the, even some of the tough times and the rough spots, I don't know that I would, I would change them. You know, there's some things that I might have handled a, a, bit, a little bit differently, um, you know, and I, I've made plenty of mistakes, like lots of them. And, uh, you know, if I could go back, I would I would probably try to not do some of those things or to do them better. Um, but as far as things in my, like, career, um, I've, I've just been so blessed. I mean, I've had such amazing opportunities. And I, I just... It's a great question, but I, I don't think I would change anything. Um, I would try to do better, though. You know, I would try to be better in the things that I did and in the opportunities that I had. Um, I, I would definitely do that because there's there's just some things that I wish, you know, when you look back on it, you're like, man, I wish I hadn't done that or I wish I had done this that way or, you know, those kinds of things. I wish I had passed that one check ride in pilot training because that might have changed my whole life. <laughs> Well, then I'm, who knows what I'm doing now, right? If I hadn't busted that, that first check ride, I busted my first check ride in pilot training. Oh, man. Yeah, first one. I was just like, what the heck, man? 
because I couldn't figure out how to land, you know, <laughs> in crosswinds. But it's a tough uh, part. It was it was tough, and I busted that check ride. But you know, and I remember the the big lesson that I got out of that. I had to go to what's called an eighty nine ride, and that's your elimination ride from pilot training. Mm. And I was like, okay, I'm doing this in my first, like, month and a half of pilot training. That was a short-lived flying career. (laughs) And I remember calling my mom, going, Mom, tomorrow I'm flying my 89 ride. And yesterday I flew my check ride, and it didn't go well, and I don't think I'm going to be much better tomorrow. And she's like, well, you know, if this is your last flight, just go out and have fun. (laughs) And I was like, good idea. And so I, I didn't even study that night before the 89 and uh, went out, and I was flying with the squadron commander, mm. and um, and I just I was just like I I, I almost I, I don't think I had accepted that I was going to fail, but I was just like you know what I'm just going to go do this and have a good time, and I did, and I remember I was doing a, a maneuver called a cloverleaf, and 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 we were flying T37s a tweet, and I love doing cloverleafs, and I did, and he had me do one for the check ride, and I asked him if I could do another. Because I was like, you know what? This is probably my last ride. So, sir, can I do another cloverleaf? He's like, look, you already did one. I recommend you don't do another one. Why don't you go on to I said, sir, I'd really like to do one. Stupidest thing. I, you know, I was like, <laughs> idiot. But I did it. You know, and I flew the cloverleaf. Then I went back and I did my landings. And, you know, and, and it was all done. And we're walking back to the uh, ops desk. And he goes, that was awesome. I don't even know why you're here. And I was like. I passed, and he said, yeah. I didn't have to take the jet. You did all your landing. You landed in your no flap. You did it. We even had a little crosswind. You're good to go. And the lesson I got, you know what the big difference was from that ride to the other rides? I relaxed, you know, and I just, you know, instead of, I could could feel myself not as tense when I looked back on it in the airplane, and I was more flying it the way the airplane should be flown, Rather than, we used to call it ham-fisting it, you know, and that's what I was doing. I was just like, when I was flying those other rides, but when I finally just kind of relaxed, it just went better. And and it, it taught me a lesson, and I went through the rest of pilot training without a problem. And I just relaxed, you know. So uh, so, so what's, you know, looking, again, kind of back on your career, what, what, what's been your favorite assignment? Oh, man, I've had, so here's how I, I get asked this a lot, and here's the way I usually answer it. They've all, and this is honest, they've all been great for one reason or another, right? Sometimes it's about the mission. Sometimes it's about the people. Sometimes it's about the location. Sometimes it's about the airplane you fly. Like, there's just all these different aspects of every assignment, and the key is you kind of focus on, on what's great about it, you know? When we were stationed in South Dakota, uh, my wife, I, I remember when I told her, she was like, oh, my gosh. We were living in D.C., and she had her this great job there. She loved it. She was pregnant, and uh, but she loved D.C. And I said, honey, we're going to Rapid City, South Dakota. <laughs> and we're, at, you know, it was not a good moment for us. But we're driving, and so we finally, we're, we're driving um, down the, the highway, and we're, like, in the plains, man. There's, like, nothing there. And we're driving and driving. And then all of a sudden, there's this sign that says, Welcome to Ellsworth Air Force Base. And she was like, This is where we're going to be living. She's just like 
crying and stuff. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And it, she was so sad. I mean, she it really bummed her out. And then we drive on base. I said, honey, it's going to be fine. We're going to be good. And we drive by this fire hydrant. And there's this big, like, antenna with a flag on the top of the fire hydrant. And so we drive by it, and we're going to where our house was going to be. Um, and she goes, what's that big antenna coming out of that fire hydrant? I said, oh, that's probably so they can find it in the snow. And she goes, it snows that much here? Oh, my God. It was. I was like, oh, this is going to be a long assignment. Well, I'll tell you this. It is out in the middle of nowhere. But when we left, she cried, too, because we had the best time there. The families that we got to be friends with, the people, the squadron that we were in, the 34th Bomb Squadron Thunderbirds. Oh, man, that's the squadron that we deployed with. I deployed twice as a squadron commander with them. We loved it there. We still have lifelong friends from our squadron there. It was the best. It started out, I was thinking this is going to be the end of my marriage. She's going to kill me. You know, but it, it just turned out to be great. But we every assignment has had something amazing. Even when we went to Egypt, we loved that assignment. Our kids loved it. We lived near the pyramids. You know, we go to the pyramids. The kids go, we have to go to the pyramids again. I'm like, listen to yourself, <laughs> you know. But every one of them, it's, it's the people. It's the place. It's the mission. You just got to find what's great about every assignment, you know. But uh, I'll end it with this. I am so happy that I get to wrap it up here. You know, it's like full circle coming here, uh, you know, back like we talked about earlier and being able to retire from here at the school I love, cadets, uh, faculty, the team. It's just I, unbelievable that I get to sort of top off my career here. That's awesome. Um, yeah, as we as we get towards the end of your career, um, after I graduate and after you retire, um, you're going to go be the executive director of the college football playoff. Yeah. Um, so what's the what's the most valuable skill from the military that you're going to be bringing to that job? And uh, is Air Force making the playoffs next season? Oh, man. <laughs> okay, let me answer that first one or that second one first. I, <clears throat> I hope so. <laughs> I hope they make it, but it won't be due to me. I don't vote. Absolutely. But I would love totally to see impartial. that be... Oh, man, wouldn't that be awesome? That would be man. pretty cool. So come on, Falcons, do it. Um, now, I think the skill that, uh, you know, not really a skill that they were looking for, because when they when they asked me to come do it, I like I had no idea. So a guy calls me on the phone literally um, one day and says, hey, I'm Daniel Parker. I'm running the search for the college football playoff executive director. And I had been picked to be on the selection committee next year. And he said, we, we got your uh, bio um, from the selection committee. And would you be willing to put your name in the hat for this interview? I was like, yeah, of course I would. And he said, you're kind of the long shot candidate, but they wanted some more non-traditional candidates. And, um, I was like, yeah, sure. Do I have a chance? He goes, well, yeah, you know, I guess. <laughs> and so I went through the interviews, and the first interview was on the phone um, with him, actually. Then there was an interview with 18 or 16 people that was on Zoom, and then that narrowed down to three people and that was in person in Dallas. And everything I talked about was leadership. They asked me a few questions about football which I was happy to give my opinions. And then, but most of it was about leadership, you know, 
How do you handle stress? How do you uh, strategic plan? What do you do in a situation like this? You know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, those are things that you and I and all of us, we know this stuff. Like, we live it. We do it. It was interesting to me that to them, it was um, it was like unique or something. Not Not yeah. unique, but maybe a different take on leadership than they were used to. And in the end, they told me that that was why they hired me because of the, the leadership discussion, because they, they asked like one of the questions they asked me, they go, okay, uh, general Clark, what can you tell us about your experience in making uh, media deals and, and media rights? And I said, um, I have none. And they were like, wow. that's it. I said, no, sir, I have none. I said, but it wouldn't be the first time that I went into a job and didn't know exactly what I was getting into, but had to figure it out. That's what the military asks of us. And uh, you rely on the people around you. You uh, try to glean from the experience of uh, folks that work for you, folks that work with you. And um, and you try to figure it out and you just work until you get to the answer that you need to get to. But that's what we do in the military. And that's what I would do, you know, coming in. That's the, the long and short of it. But it was like, we all go into situations, you will. I mean, you did when you came here. You will when you go into the Air Force. Every officer, every senior NCO, NCO that I know go into situations that they uh, oftentimes aren't exactly prepared for, but they figure it out. You know, and there's always some aspect of your job that the Air Force didn't train you to do, but you got to figure it out. And, um, you know, that was kind of my answer. I said, I don't know anything about media rights. But I'll figure it out. And I know there's other people around that can help me do this, and I'll count on them, you know. I'm not ashamed to say I don't know. And uh, that's, uh, I think, a strength, you know, to be willing yeah. to go, I don't know. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's work together to figure this out. For sure. Yes. That's awesome. So, sir, last question. Uh-oh. It is a tradition on the podcast oh. to ask this question. Uh, some pilots defect and go to a different aircraft. Mm. Some pilots stay with their bread and butter, their baby. We'll see what you say. So the question is, what's the best aircraft in the Air Force's inventory today and why? Oh, man. See? Uh, all right. The best aircraft in the Air Force's inventory today is the B-1. And here's why. Because it's mine. That's the airplane that I flew. And you're asking me from my perspective. I love the B-1. I mean, I the things that I was able to do in that airplane and the people that I flew it with, uh, it, it is just a plane that I, you know, it, I, I'm like emotional about it. One of the hardest things I had to do when I was the 8th Air Force commander, um, that was when we decided what uh, what plane was going to be retired and and who we, what we were going to keep and how we were going to build the future inventory, I was the first one to raise my hand and say the B-1's got to be the first to go. Uh, but I love it. I still love it, um, and it won't be in the inventory long. So, you know, when it's got a short life, we have to love it a little bit more, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I will tell you, I've never heard a pilot say, I don't love my airplane. You know, you can say what you want going into it, just like the EC-135. I thought, what on earth? I loved flying that plane until I went to the B-1, and then I loved that one <laughs> even more. You always love the plane you fly. You just learn about the mission. You learn about the aircraft. 
You learn about the people that maintain it, that uh, you fly it with, your wingmen, and you just learn to, you, you, it's not learning, you just, you become attached to it, you know? And it, it's something special about flying an airplane. Wh whether you're a pilot or a whizzo or uh, whatever your position is, when you get in that mission with that airplane, it, it's special. And I think that's why people love to fly. It, it really is a special career and a, a, a special calling, I would say. Well, th sir, thank you uh, so much for taking time out of your busy schedule for uh, coming on the podcast today. We we really do appreciate it. It's been a blast. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Thank it's you, awesome. John. Jack, you guys are pros. You got this down. <laughs> Episode 14. That's awesome. We do our best. You're like, yeah, we're old hat. No, that's good. <laughs> that was really good. Well, I've watched some of your other podcasts, and, and you do a great job, so... Uh, thanks for doing that, that. Well, and thank pushing you, it out. You know, it, it maybe it'll help inspire uh, some other folks to to move in this path. So hopefully, it's part of the idea. That's great. Yeah. Well, this has been the Flyover Podcast, episode fourteen. Again, thank you to General Clark for taking time out of his schedule. Um, as always, these episodes are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, with clips on our Instagram Reels and YouTube Shorts channels. Um, with that, we will catch you all in the next one.